Good morning. Merry Christmas. You guys are real excited about Christmas. That's good to hear. Um, my name is Jenny Jones, um, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here, like Ryan said. Um, but that was not actually um, my name up until 14 years ago. So the first 20 years of my life, um, I spent as Jenny Day. And with the exception of my parents, who are here this morning, um, not many, if any of you guys, knew uh, Jenny Day. And so I want to tell you a little story about 14-year-old freshman in high school, ninth grader, Jenny Day. And I wanted to bring a picture to share with you guys so you knew the kind of person that you're, that you're working with. Um, I don't know why I felt like that was the visual you needed. I mean, it does go along well with the story. But anyway, um, and I'm, no, I'm not going to tell you what that, the story behind that picture um, but I wanted you to know this person. Um, so uh, anyway, I want to I share a story with you um, about a 14-year-old ninth grader, um, Jenny Day, real fast. So um, when I was in ninth grade, uh, sometimes I would ride the bus home occasionally if I didn't have like school practice or an activity after practice or something like that. So um, I rode the bus home one day and um, which now that I'm saying it out loud is a completely irrelevant detail to this story. This is not a bus story, but now you know how I got home occasionally some days. Um, but anyway, so I, I got off the bus um, and I walked in the back door of our house and the house that we lived in at that time, the back door dropped you off right into the kitchen. And then off the kitchen was like a hallway kind of to the bedrooms. All right. So um, I walk in the door. Uh, I open the back door. I threw my stuff down. I slammed the back door. I stomped to my room and I slammed the door behind me in my room. Okay. Now I want to back up a little bit and tell you a little bit about what happened that day. Okay. Because it was a terrible day, especially if you're a 14 year old girl. It was a really terrible day. So here's what happened. I, um, I failed a test that day and my teacher emailed my volleyball coach to let her know that I failed the test. So then I got chewed out by my volleyball coach. That same day, one of my close friends um, asked the guy that I wanted to ask to Sadie Hawkins dance. She asked him to the Sadie Hawkins dance. Um, And so all day long for the rest of the day, um, I was involved in 14-year-old girl drama. Then on top of it, that guy that I thought, you know, there was a potential relationship maybe there that was going to happen. Uh, he announces publicly that he was glad that my friend asked him first because he wanted to go with her instead of going with me anyway, but he didn't know how to tell me because he didn't want to hurt my feelings. Thanks, pal. You already hurt my feelings. You just announced it to the entire freshman class. All right? So this is all that's going on in my mind when I walk in. So I walk in, and this happens, and uh, my mom is uh, in the kitchen, and so she witnesses this whole scene go down and uh, she does the unthinkable as the mom of a teenage girl and she walks to my room to check on me. Now I don't fault her for doing that you know she's trying to be a good mom but I will say now myself having a almost 13 year old daughter I know that you don't poke the bear. Sometimes you just got to let things lie right? But uh, Pam was not going to let it lie that day, okay? So she comes, and she opens the door, and uh, she said, hey, do you, uh, you know, is everything okay? Like, do you, do you want to talk about it? Um, to which I replied with, no, I don't want to talk about it, and get out of my room. 
as if they didn't pay for the room in the first place, some sort of ownership over it. I said, get out of my room. She said, okay, that's fine. You don't have to talk about it, but you know, you need to pick your stuff up that you just threw all over the kitchen floor, um, and you can't talk to me like that. And then when she went to turn or to walk away, she did the unpardonable sin and walked away without closing my bedroom door back. So inconsiderate. <laughs> so I yell out in very mature fashion, shut the freaking door. Well, she said, she said, ooh, you were there. So she, so she turns, oh, yeah. So, so she turns around uh, and she was like, I don't like it when you use the word freaking because I know what you really want to say and you're just using it as a substitute word. Don't use that word. Again, in all of my 14 years of maturity, I replied back and said, no, if I wanted to say shut the freaking door, I would have said shut the freaking door. But this time I didn't use the word freaking. I did in fact use the other word. And I knew the second it flew out of my mouth that that was a very poor decision. And it wasn't because my mom was angry. Uh, she, something you should know about my mom is she doesn't actually really get angry um, that often. Uh, but it was just the hurt and the disappointment on her face that really impacted me in that moment. And in fact, it was, I remember in all of my years growing up, it was the only time that I remember her saying she was going to call my dad and talk to him about it because she just couldn't deal with me anymore. It wasn't a good situation and a good environment. In fact, it was so bad, this is the first time that we've ever talked about it outside of <laughs> that day. Um, and I chose to do it in a public setting because that's, how I am. I'm a giver. Um, and so anyway, uh, my point is this, is that if you picked up a book of some sort, let's say it's called, you know, Infamous Ninth Graders of Katy, Texas in the year 1998, okay? You picked that up, you opened it up, and you read that story that I just verbally told you about me. And that was the only thing you ever knew about me. That was the only recorded incident about Jenny Day that you ever knew. You would have a very different opinion of me than you do right now. You would think to yourself, man, that is just a foul-mouthed, disrespectful brat. And I'm not saying that some of those characteristics obviously were not present. They, of course, were. But what you wouldn't know is if you just stopped at that one excerpt of that story, you wouldn't know that that same foul-mouthed kid went on that same year to present the entire gospel to her freshman class during my class president's speech. You wouldn't know that I also discipled a group of junior high girls that I started with when they were sixth graders and I was a ninth grader and I went all the way through junior high with them, meeting with them on a weekly basis, talking about the Bible, diving into the Bible, how we could live our lives in high school in a way that glorified Christ. You obviously wouldn't know that I, of course, went on to college became a wife, um, became a mom, and of course now became a pastor. You wouldn't know all of that. Because the reality is, is that any, at any given moment, we really only know about 10% of someone's story. And in this incident for me, I mean, that, that's not, that wasn't even 10% of my life, right? That was one afternoon. 
But it was definitely a scene in which you could form an entire opinion about a person, right? And so that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about how, as we continue through this misfit series um, that we called, sorry, Missy, if I did that, um, as we continue through this misfit series, how we're looking at these women in Jesus's lineage, that if we just take a very superficial look, a very superficial perspective at their story, we're only going to get 10% of their story. And the reason we called it a misfit series or misfit story was because if you take that superficial perspective, really all you're going to see is very broken, messy people. But the reality is, is that yes, these are broken, messy women in Jesus's lineage, but there's also so much more to them. What we see is only one chapter in the book of their life. It's only 10% of their story. And I think that the woman we're going to focus on today is so woefully misrepresented. In fact, more so than any of the other three women in the lineage. And I think that's because, um, unfortunately, I think there's Bible teachers that have just really done a disservice to her in the past. I think Hollywood has painted her in an inaccurate light. And so our society as a whole, I think, has really believed um, something about her and her reputation that is either untrue or just not the complete story. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to move past the 10% of this woman's story that most people know and thinks it ends there, and we're going to look and try to fill out the other 90% of her story. So the first place we're going to start this morning is Matthew chapter 1. Um, so uh, if you... Uh, have your Bible, please go ahead and open it up. Uh, Matthew is the very first book in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, we have several on the tables for you to use. If you grab one of those Bibles on the table, I can give you um, a little bit of a help. It starts on page 657. 657 is where the book of Matthew starts. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. Now, as you're turning there, there's a couple things that I know um, Ryan and, and Joanne, who preached last week, uh, have covered in this series. But I want to make sure that we're reminded of them before we dive in, because I think they're really important to know. So here's the first one. It's that this is not just a boring list of so-and-so is the son of so-and-so, so-and-so is the son of so-and-so. Now, I think it gets categorized that a lot. And if I'm being honest with you, I know that there's definitely times that I've just skipped past the first chapter of Matthew because I'm like okay just a list of names like what can I get out of this boring genealogy right but the reason Matthew includes this genealogy first thing is because he wants to make a point that this is not just a birth record that this is Jesus's origins this is his heritage that, that his birth is not actually the beginning of the story that God's rescue mission started long before even the birth of Christ, that his lineage, this is where the story begins. All right, and then secondly, the second thing I want us to be reminded of um, is this, is that it was not at all common in the Hebrew culture to include women in a recorded genealogy. All right, this is a patriarchal culture, society, um, and so women were not really acknowledged for um, who they were. They were more acknowledged for what they could do, which was produce children, specifically male children. So for Matthew to include any women in his genealogy would have been very countercultural. Um, and so that, as a reader, needs to alert us to the question of why. 
if this wasn't normal and this was countercultural, then why? Why did Matthew include these women in his genealogy? And, and this is what I think. This is why I think Matthew did it. I think he did it to point out that these women, these four women made a very creative contribution to Jesus' lineage by their obedience to God above anything else in their life. They made a very creative contribution And Matthew wants to draw that to our attention. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read verse 1, and then we're actually just going to skip down into verse 6 because that's really where um, we're going to be focusing on uh, this morning. So verse 1 is this. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You can skip down then to verse 6, and it says, And Jesse, the father of King David, so Jesse is King David's father, And then David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. I want you to underline that. I want you to underline David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. So even though Matthew does mention women in his genealogy, they are still in the minority, all right? And in fact, this particular woman that we're going to talk about today, um, she's not even named. She's called Uriah's wife. So why? Because the other women are named. You have Tamar, Ruth, Rahab, and then we have Uriah's wife. Why is she not named? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. I think one, uh, Matthew is assuming that these readers are going to have kind of a working knowledge of, you know, Hebrew history, and um, they would know that Uriah's wife is Bathsheba. That's the name of this woman. So I think he's assuming kind of a working knowledge. And then the second thing is, is that I think he's actually making a point to advocate for Bathsheba. I think he's reminding the readers by calling her Uriah's wife that the scene in which most people know Bathsheba for was an action done to her. It's not something she did wrong. It was something that was done to her. That she was Uriah's wife before this action was done to her. I think it's to encourage the reader to dive into more of her story. And in order to do that, you have to take a step back into the Old Testament. In order to dive into Uriah's wife, also known as Bathsheba, we have to dive into the Old Testament. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to dive into the Old Testament to fill out more of Bathsheba's story and see what we can learn from Bathsheba and why studying her is important for our Christmas story in 2018 today. Why does that matter and what can we learn from that? And so that's what we're going to do. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to flip over to um, or flip back to the Old Testament to 1 Kings chapter 1. 1 Kings chapter 1. You're going to flip back to uh, page 227 if you are using one of the Bibles on, our t- on the table. Now, when you get to 1 Kings, you're going to see a subtitle that just simply says David in his old age or something like that, something about David's old age, right? You might be thinking, wait, I thought we were going to talk about um, Bathsheba. This is about David being old. This is not about Bathsheba. So um, where are we going with this? Well, honestly, that's kind of my point, is the fact that many of us don't even know that the story of Bathsheba goes into 1 Kings. But it does, because we only know 10% 
of the story of Bathsheba. Here's the 10% we know. I'll just take a quick poll in the room. How many of you guys have ever heard of the story of David and Bathsheba? Or you've heard the name David or Bathsheba? Either one of those names even. Yeah, okay. I mean, pretty much almost everybody in the room, right? It's a very well-known story, or at least those names are well-known. But that's only 10% of Bathsheba's story. And so what I'm going to do is I'm actually not going to focus on that part of, of, Dave, of Bathsheba's story. Now, I am going to recap it for you for a couple reasons. One, I think that it's very important that we see this story through the lens of the historical culture and background in which it was happening. And I have not oftentimes heard it preached or told that way. And so I think that there's some untruths that kind of come about that I want to kind of clear up, okay? And then it is important to know, I'm not saying that we should just disregard that part of Bathsheba's story. I'm just saying we don't stop there. But it is important to know that because it does go into so much of what we're going to be covering for the rest of the message. But the majority of the message, I want us to focus on the rest of this, the other 90% of this story. So I'm going to just recap the story of David and Bathsheba for you really quick. Um, However, this story is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. So if you want to go back and read it, um, just write that down on your message notes. We have pens and um, notes and stuff if you'd like to take notes this morning. Uh, Just write down 2 Samuel chapter 11. You can go back and read um, that story on your own because Again, I'm going to give you just kind of a quick um, recap. So here's what happens. Um, David is out walking around on the roof of his palace and he looks over and he sees a woman bathing. Now, this is where the portrayal of Bathsheba gets a little sketchy and frankly untrue at times. Uh, Bathsheba was not just publicly naked for all of the world to see. Um, She was not just purposely putting herself out there you know, right in front of David, you know, just trying to make herself be seen by David, far from it. What Bathsheba was doing is she was actually upholding God's law. She was participating in ceremonial cleansing that women would do seven days after the end of their monthly cycle. And because there's not indoor plumbing, uh, women didn't do this, didn't have the option of doing this in a private bathroom like you and I have and like we're used to. And so because of that, they were almost never naked. They always had some kind of covering, something that was covering them. So that's, that's the accurate portrayal of, uh, and picture of where we are with this story of um, Bathsheba. And so I don't want you to think that some sort of scene, you know, in which David is just trying to, you know, casually take a stroll on his rooftop and then bam, just naked Bathsheba right there. There's nothing you can do about it. That's not what's going on in this situation. Okay, that's not the scene. This is a scene of a guy, of a woman trying to fulfill the Mosaic law on her own property, probably not even knowing that she's being watched. Okay? So anyway, David sees this woman. Um, He thinks that she's beautiful, so he says to one of his messengers, hey, go get her. The messenger goes and gets her, brings her back to the palace, and then the Bible just says this, that she came to him and he slept with her. And in the past, what happened between David and Bathsheba would have been referred to as adultery. Um, But with today's understanding, we can call what happened a gross abuse of power. 
Because after David has sex with Bathsheba, she returns home and um, she finds out that she's pregnant. Now, as we know, in Matthew chapter 1, her title is Uriah's wife. So David immediately starts to go into cover-up mode because Bathsheba is Uriah's wife, but Uriah is off to war. So it can't be his baby. So David sends a, a message and says, hey, bring, have Uriah sent back um, to send back home. So Uriah comes back home. David's thinking he's been off to war for a long time. He comes home. Surely he's going to go home. He's going to sleep with Bathsheba. Bathsheba's pregnant. Everybody will think it's his baby. That's great. Well, that doesn't happen. Uriah comes back home, but he doesn't, he comes back, but he doesn't go home because he says, you know what, if no one else, um, no other soldier can go home, then it's not fair for me to be able to do that either. So David's like, okay, cover up plan number two. I'm going to um, give him dinner and try to get him drunk tonight. Surely if he's drunk, then he'll go home to his wife. Well, that doesn't work either. Same thing happens. Uriah sleeps at the entrance of um, the palace that night because it's not fair for him to be able to go home if no one else can do it either. And so then David's like, okay, I've got to go into cover uh, cover up mode number three, plan number three. And so he puts uh, down on a letter, uh, seals it with the seal of the king, uh, gives the message in the letter to Uriah to deliver to his commanding officer when he goes back. Well, in that letter, it tells the commanding officer, I want you to put Uriah on the front lines, but then when you guys get there, I want all the rest of the men to drop back except Uriah so surely he will be killed. And that's exactly what happens. Uriah is killed and he dies. Now here's the thing. Most of the time, that's where the story ends, right? That's what we know of Bathsheba. That's what we walk away with. But again, that's only 10% of Bathsheba's story. There's so much more to her and how God uses her. So I want us to fast forward now to 1 Kings chapter 1. Because remember, we're trying to fill out the rest of Bathsheba's um, story. And so before we dive into this, I want to introduce you to a cast of characters, okay? Kind of fill you in a little bit on some things that have happened between when we leave to um, now. So there's this cast of characters, right? So we have David and we have Bathsheba. After Uriah dies, Bathsheba goes back um, to the palace to officially become uh, David's wife. Um, So we have David and we have Bathsheba. Uh, Then we have uh, Nathan. Nathan is a prophet and one of David's closest kind of um, advisors and confidants. God often uses Nathan to communicate to King David. And then we have Solomon. Solomon is David and Bathsheba's son. So David and Bathsheba, they go on to have a son, Solomon. And then we have Adonijah. Adonijah is one of David's sons from another wife. I know I know I'm not going to dive into polygamy in the Old Testament. I don't have time. I'm going to let Ryan handle that one other Sunday. I've handled enough sexual scandal for the morning, so um, he can handle that. But uh, Adonai is one of uh, David's other sons, okay? And he is actually trying to take um, the throne after David dies, okay? So that's kind of the cast of characters. That's where we are um, when we dive into this. So let's go ahead and read together um, 1 Kings chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 11. Here's what it says. Then Nathan asked Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, have you not heard that Adonai, the son of Haggith, there's a winner, parents, tuck that away, Haggith, has become king and our Lord David knows nothing about it. 
Now then, let me advise you, and I want you to underline the rest of this verse. Let me advise you how you can save your own life and how the life, you can save the life of your son Solomon. Okay, so let me stop there for a minute. So here, here's what's happening. Uh, Nathan comes to Bathsheba and he says, hey, listen, um, David's other son is trying to uh, become king. I need to advise you on how you can save your life and save Solomon's life because Nathan knows that if Adonai becomes king, he's going to treat Bathsheba and Solomon like criminals or either kill them because he doesn't want Solomon to be a threat to him. All right? So Nathan's coming to Bathsheba and saying, hey, we got to do something about this. Let's keep going. Verse 13. It says, go into King David and say to him, my Lord, the king, did you not swear to me, your servant? Surely Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne. Why then has Adonai become king? While you are still there talking to the king, I will come in and add my word to what you have said. So Nathan's saying, I'll come in and I'll say, no, yes, this is true. This is what has really happened. Verse, verse 15. So Bathsheba went to see the king, the aged king in his room. Bathsheba bowed down, prostrating herself before the king. I'll stop right there just for a second. Um, this is a very risky move for Bathsheba. And when I say risky, I mean like a life-risking move. Here's why. Because not anybody can just walk into the king and ask him something. You have to be invited by the king and then have permission to ask him something. Yes, this is true even of his wife. And I'm sure my husband Chad wishes that this was the same protocol um, today. <laughs> I had to be invited in. But this is how it works. So Bathsheba's w- risking her life to go do this. Um, so let's, let's keep going. Uh, picking back up at the end of verse 16, it says, uh, this is King David. He asked, what is it you want? The king asked. She said to him, my Lord, you yourself swore to me, your servant, by the Lord your God, Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit at my, on my throne. But now Adonai has become king, and you, the Lord, my Lord, the king, do not know about it. My Lord, the king, the eyes of all of Israel are on you to learn from you who will sit on the throne of my Lord, the king, after him. Otherwise, As soon as my Lord the King is laid to rest with his ancestors, I and my son Solomon will be treated as criminals. While she was speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet arrived, and the king was told, Nathan the prophet is here. So he went before the king and bowed with his face to the ground. Nathan said, Have you, my Lord the King, declared that Adonai shall be king after you, and that he will sit on your throne? Today he has gone down and sacrificed great number of cattle, fattened calves and sheep. He was in, has invited all the king's son, the commanders of the army, and Abathar the priest. Right now they are eating and drinking with him and saying, Long live King Adjani, but me your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jodahiah, and your servant Solomon, he did not invite. Is this something the Lord my king has done without letting his servants know? Who would sit on the throne of the Lord my king after him? So Nathan's coming in and he's saying, hey, listen, um, so he's acting like he's king. He's invited all these people to the ceremony. They're sacrificing. They're celebrating. They're treating him like a king. And so Nathan, in a very diplomatic way, is like, hey, I'm just making sure you didn't arrange that behind our back and we just don't know about it. But really what Nathan's saying is, 
do you know that this is happening and going on because you said that Solomon was going to be king. But it all started with Bathsheba taking that risk of her life and walking in and bringing this to the king's attention. So that's what's happening. So then let's pick up in verse 28. It says, Then King David said, Call in Bathsheba. So she came into the king's presence and stood before him. The king then took an oath. As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry out this very day what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. And then I want you to underline the rest of this verse or highlight it. It says, Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne in my place. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne in your place. So yet again, we've seen this throughout this entire series. We have this beautiful picture of this woman in Jesus' lineage. In this case, it's Bathsheba with obviously the encouragement and the help of the prophet Nathan choosing to fight for the preservation of Israel's lineage over her own safety and comfort. And yet here's the thing. The story of Bathsheba, it's not over yet. We get to continue to see more of her. And there's one more scene that I want us to look at before we kind of pull this all together to see what it means for us. And it's this. It's a scene in 1 Kings chapter 2. So just go a little bit further, right there. 1 Kings chapter 2. And we're going to actually look at verse 19. Here's what happens leading up to verse 19. And the conversation is not actually important. Um, what I want you to focus on is, is again, what we're going to look at in verse um, 19. But um, basically what happens is you have um, Adonai who, uh, you know, has essentially been given kind of the what's up. Like, hey, nice try, dude, but you're not going to be king. That's not going to happen. David says, you know, Solomon's going to come in and do that. And so he's been told, no, this isn't going to happen. And so he goes to Bathsheba and he's like, okay, listen, I, I see the tides have turned. I'm not going to be king. I know Solomon's going to, but... Um, can you just grant me one thing, which is essentially, can I have this particular woman as my wife? And Bathsheba's, you know, she's like, I can't approve that. Um, and he's like, but will you go to Solomon and ask Solomon to approve it? So Bathsheba says, yeah, okay, I'll, I agree. I'll go, I'll go to Solomon, King Solomon, and ask him for that. And so that's what we see. Um, this is what's happening when Bathsheba's walking in. So let's look at verse 19 and let's read that together. It says, when Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonai, the king stood up to her, to meet her. I want you to underline this phrase, bowed down to her and sat down on his throne. He had a throne brought for the king's mother, that's Bathsheba, and she, and underline this, sat down at his right hand. Now listen, did you pick up on what happened when Bathsheba went to speak to the king? Again, it's not important what she went to speak to the king about. Did you pick up on the king's actions? What happened? The king bowed to Bathsheba when she walked in. And then he sets up a throne at his right hand. And he says, you sit here. We have this beautiful picture like a textbook picture of a story coming full circle. Because here's what happens. We see 
in this first kind of scene that we have with David and Bathsheba, we see um, Bathsheba go into the palace, not knowing why she's going in, leaving the palace as a victim. But then we leave Bathsheba walking into the palace where King Solomon is bowing down to her. Kings didn't bow down to people. People bow down to them. But just Bathsheba walking into the room that King Solomon is, he has so much um, respect for her, so much honor is restored to her that he bows down and then he takes the throne and he puts it at his right hand for her to sit next to him. I mean, outside of being king, the most prominent position you can really be in. But see, the thing is, is that if we just stopped at the story of David and Bathsheba, we wouldn't know that. We wouldn't see how, how that honor for Bathsheba was restored. We would miss the transformation of this woman entering the palace as a vulnerable victim, but yet leaving the palace as a woman of honor in which a king bows to. So what does that, what does that mean for us today? I, is that a cool story? Yes. Is it inspiring? Yes. But what does that mean for us today? Specifically, what does that tell us about the Christmas story in 2018? And that's actually what our focus question is going to be. That's, what I, that's the question that I want us to answer. We've leading all up to this is what does this tell us about the Christmas story? And here's the answer. It's a little wordy, I admit. I like all the words, so you're just going to have to bear with me for this, all right? But I got it, tried to get it as short as I could. But here's what I think this tells us about the Christmas story. It's that Matthew includes Bathsheba and these other women as an early illustration of the gospel in which the birth of Jesus Christ is about to fulfill. Matthew includes Bathsheba in these other women as an early illustration of the gospel in which the birth of Jesus Christ is about to fulfill. See, Matthew is showing like right off the bat from the very beginning in chapter one that Jesus's very origins were built on stories of scandal and abuse, but ultimately redemption. That yes, Jesus's lineage was built on stories of scandal and abuse, but ultimately, you know what it was built on? Stories of redemption. Even in the genealogy in Matthew chapter one, we see God's grace being weaved throughout the entire thing. We see that God, he loves to redeem sinners. He loves to produce something beautiful out of sordid family backgrounds. He loves to make foreigners his children. He loves to reconcile enemies. He loves to make all things work together for the good of those who love him and follow him according to the purpose that they've been called. Now, here's the thing. That doesn't mean that that's always easy. That doesn't mean that it's not messy. God working things together for the good of those that love him does not mean that, you know what, if I'm checking the boxes and I'm reading my Bible and I'm praying, that means that every single day is going to be rainbows and unicorns. That's not what that means. What that means is that in spite of, while you're walking through the mess, while you're walking through the trials like Bathsheba was doing, that if your focus and your desire and your heart is submitted and surrendered to the Holy Spirit and focused on him, then guess what? God is in the background and he is working things together for your good. 
Because here's the thing, at any given moment, we only see 10% of the story. We have to recognize that at any given moment, seeing 10% of the story means that when we're interacting with someone, we're only seeing 10% of their story at the most. We're only seeing one chapter of their book that's being written. So that means that we don't have enough information to make a judgment on their life. The only way that we can come alongside and support them is to listen and to love them right where they are right now. Love them for who they are right then in that moment. Not for who we think they should be or who we want them to be because here's the deal. God's not through writing their story yet. We don't know the rest of it. So we are called to love them right where they are. And that's what the story of Bathsheba tells us about this amazing news of Christmas. It's that Jesus came to make notoriously unclean sinners and foreigners like you and like me, people with disgraceful pasts, clean. That's the awe and the wonder of Christmas. That's what the birth of Christ means. It's not just a cute baby with some cute sheep around him. It's that his birth means we now do not have to be separated from God. God looks and sees us in his unconditional love as clean. New creations, the Bible tells us. But here's the thing, in the same way that we at any given moment only see 10% of someone else's story, we at any given moment only see 10% of our own story. And the reason I want to bring this up is because you may be in a place right now in which you have walked through or you're currently walking through something so hard or something so painful that you can't imagine that God would want to use you for anything. You're carrying around so much shame and so much guilt and probably no one even knows it, so you're shouldering it on your own, that it was really hard for you to even walk through the doors this morning. And maybe that's because of some decisions that you've made, or maybe like Bathsheba, that's because of something that was done to you, something out of your control. And if that is you, well, let me tell you this. Here's what I want you to hear this morning. It's that you do not know your full story. Only God does. You do not know your full story only God does. And so instead of allowing that shame and that guilt to push away the one that does know your full story, lay it at his feet. Give it over to him. Stop letting it control you and lean into the only person that knows the rest of the story. Because he's not done with you yet. He is not going to let you be defined by that one event or that one thing that happened. He has so much more for you. My friend uh, Joanne Hummel, who preached here last week, um, there's something that she said to me on more than one one occasion uh, whenever I have uh, shared with her a particularly hard time that I might be having or thinking, you know, maybe God's kind of done with me, done, done working through me. This is something that she always says to me. She says, you can't judge the whole book by one chapter. You are simply in chapter six of a 12-chapter book that you did not author. You can't judge a whole book by one chapter. 
You are simply in chapter six of a 12 chapter book that you did not author. So you have to keep going. You have to see how the rest turns out. Hand over your shame and your guilt to the one that does know. You are not defined by what you have done. You are defined by the birth of a baby and what he did for you. You are a new creation. And here's the thing, just as King Solomon restored the honor of Bathsheba, God, he does know and he does see your whole story. And he sent Jesus in the form of the most vulnerable human being, a newborn, completely dependent on other people for survival. He did that so that you and your honor can be restored as well into the person who God created you to be. So what can we learn from Bathsheba in Christmas? It's this, it's that you don't ever know the full story, only God does. So lean into that. What that looks like is that looks like some days your feelings are not going to feel that way. You're not going to feel like you find peace by God knowing the story. Choose to believe it despite your feelings. Choose to that day to say, God, I know I don't know the full picture. I know you do. And so would you ease my anxiety? Would you give me peace? God, I don't know the full story of this family member that's suffering or that's hurting, but I know you do. And so I hand them over to you and I trust that you have a fantastic plan for them. God, I don't know the full story of this particular situation, but I know you do. And so I hand that over to you. That's really what this misfit story is all about. It's that Bathsheba's restoration, the other 90% of her story, it's a foreshadowing to the ultimate restoration that's going to happen between us and God when Jesus Christ comes in the form of a baby. That's what this Christmas story is all about. Because of Christmas, the illustration of these women and of Bathsheba is just a foreshadowing to the fulfillment of the gospel of what Christ is going to do. And so what I want to do is I want to end this morning, um, and I just want to pray. Um, I just want to pray for you guys. I want to pray for... um, just the fact that the Lord uh, does know the stories that we don't know and that we can find peace in that and that God would allow you to see yourself and to others or the others around you the way that he sees them with honor restored as new creation. So let's pray that God would do that. Dear Father, we, um, we thank you, God, for the fact that um, you are not a God that shies away from messy stories. God, that you are a God that um, has your word filled with people that are just like us. That God, you are, um, you're not interested in uh, people that appear to be perfect or have it all together. But your interest is focused on bringing yourself the most glory. And God, so often that happens through the amazing restoration 
that you offer people in their lives and their stories. I thank you, God, for the restoration that you have offered me and brought me in my life. I thank you, Lord, that you continue every day to renew mercies and extend your grace to us. And so, God, I want to pray just specifically uh, this morning for uh, the people that are sitting in this room, God, that are in a situation in which they have struggled maybe having compassion or empathy with somebody in their life. God, would you um, allow them to stop trying to do that in their own strength, Holy Spirit? Would you fill them for love and for compassion for that particular person? Would you remind them on a daily basis that they only know 10% of the story, but you know it all, and you have a plan for that person. You have a purpose. And you also have a plan and a purpose to use them in their life. And God, I pray for the people that are sitting in this room right now, Lord, that are struggling with the current situation that they're in. Holy Spirit, would you give them the gentle reminder that their story is not done. This is not the last chapter. This is not um, the whole picture. That you have more book to write. And that they can trust you. That despite changing circumstances, you and your character never changes. So God, would you allow them to not stiff arm, to not push away the one constant unchanging thing in their life right now. But would you allow them to cling to it with all that they have? Would they cling to you, God, with all that they are? And would you show them that your character and your love for them is never changing, that you are who you say you are, that they can trust your promises because you always come through. You are always a God of your word and that you are not done with their story yet. We love you, Father. We rejoice and are in awe of the fact that you sent this little baby for us, not for someone else, not for just the world as a whole, but for us, for our life. Thank you. Thank you for that sacrifice. And God, would we lean into it and we would we accept it for the gift that it is? And would we just lavish in your grace and your mercy? And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.